Welcome to the Friendly Fire Podcast, a Navy SEAL Museum production. Hi, I'm Rick Kaiser, retired Navy SEAL Master Chief and Chief Operating Officer of the National Navy SEAL Museum here in Fort Pierce, Florida, the birthplace of the Navy SEALs. We are recording from inside the museum's own Mark V assault craft, and now I'm going to introduce my good friend, Tim Nichols. Hello, everyone out there. I hope you enjoy this podcast. My name is Tim Nichols, retired Marine and professor at Duke University. I'm super excited to participate in this, and I think we have a lot of cool things to talk about. Welcome, listeners. This is uh, Tim Nichols of the Friendly Fire podcast, which is uh, put on by the Navy SEAL Museum in Fort Pierce, Florida. Um, It's hosted, co-hosted, first by my good friend Rick Kaiser, who is broadcasting out of a Mark V SEAL assault craft um, on the site of the uh, original Navy SEAL training base, which is in Fort Pierce, Florida. And I'm broadcasting from North Carolina, where it is currently 33 degrees and raining. Uh, we we do this because we've been friends for a long time. Uh, we don't see eye to eye on many things, but uh, our friendship allows us to disagree uh, respectfully and funny and in a funny manner, and um, still stay friends. So, Rick, um, how are things down in Florida? It's eighty degrees here, Tim, and sunny. <laughs> <laughs> We're having a cold front come in tonight, and it'll get to 70. Oh. <laughs> you may have to wear socks, but unlikely. Yeah, so. But at this time of year, you only have to apply sunscreen once a day. Okay, good. That's good to know, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm wearing my hat and my parka and walking the dog, wondering why I got a dog, uh, because it's so <laughs> cold outside, and he's so slow when it's cold uh, out because he loves the cold. Um, yeah. Well, uh, Rick, maybe I, I thought I would throw out the first subject today. Uh, it's something that I've been thinking about um, after the election, knowing that you know 70 million people voted on each side, which means we're, we're pretty split as a nation. And I know part of it is people feel like uh, America's prowess has, um, has degraded a little bit. And we have two different perspectives on how we can revive ourselves. And one of the topics I thought I would think of, or I thought I would throw to you is the idea of welfare um, and the idea of a kind of social supplement uh, for people who are uh, hurting and whether they're hurting because of their own uh, shortfalls or whether they're hurting because of a condition that they have. Abraham Lincoln once said, you know, a nation can be judged by the way it takes care of uh, the people who are most, um, you know, most disadvantaged. So I thought I would ask you if you could comment uh, on your ideas about welfare, where do you think it fits and um, how America can be good at taking care of people who are disadvantaged? I think welfare is a good thing. I think uh People sometimes need help. If when something happens in their life and obviously you don't want to be homeless or lose your job or get in some situation where your whole life falls apart, that's where welfare should be used. Okay. That's a, there should be a system that they can go and get a hand up. And that could be food, it could be uh, money um, to pay for their you know their living situation. It could be a you know a homeless shelter. That's the kind of welfare I'm all for. Okay. But unfortunately, with all things government, 
related. The government is not good at running anything, I don't think. Maybe the military, but the military isn't in the money-making business. As you know, the military is, spends money. Um, unfortunately, I think the welfare system is the same thing. We waste so much money um, and there's no, and if you try to reform it, you're looked at as a, uh, you're racist or you're, uh, you know, okay. you are, you have no heart, you know, it's like, you know, but let's, let's just, you know, we could go on with food stamps. We could talk about, uh, Obama cell phones. We could, we could talk about a lot of different things that I don't agree with. Okay. But fundamentally, you, Fundamentally, I agree with it. Yeah. yeah, you agree. Like our nation's character revolves around the idea that we are well off enough and that we have um, some compassion for people who are disadvantaged, that the idea is to figure out a way to help them, um, you know, kind of join uh, society, whether it's someone who has a mental or a physical incapacitation, uh, physical incapacitation such as yourself, and... Um, or someone Mental. who is out of work or someone who is uh, been put out of a job. And just recently, uh, Congress and the president agreed uh, to push a ton of money uh, to small businesses and to people who couldn't make rent. Um, and we're talking in the T trillion dollars uh, over right. the last nine months. How do you feel about that? You think it was the right thing? I think, uh, yes, I think these people... A lot of them needed that kind of help. Uh, if you lose your job, you lose your job, and you still got to pay rent, or else you're gonna out on the street, right? Right. So that is not acceptable um, in you know the, these you know these times of COVID. Um, there's no other option but to support them. Okay, and I totally agree with that. Do I do I think we should be supporting the uh, the woman that gets pregnant, uh, you know, and has multiple children, and that puts her in her in the welfare class, I am totally against supporting that. Maybe one kid, but when it gets to the next kid and the third and the fourth and the fifth, we can't, we got to stop. We have to figure out how to make that stop. Okay. And we can't incentivize it. I guess that's the, that's the right term. We can't incentivize it to keep paying this woman to have children. Okay. I don't, uh, yeah, I don't think welfare actually works like that. I think there's a limit. Um, uh, during the Clinton I administration, think so. I think he was forced uh, to pass legislation that uh, has a clock on the amount of welfare that you get. But that doesn't mean subsidy uh, for children. And at the end of the day, uh, if someone has a child, uh, I worry deeply about the 70-year life of that child from beginning to end and how they can be a contributing, constructive, valued member of society despite that child's mother, uh, mother's choices and father's choices. <clears throat> so I do have a soft spot in my heart that, um, you know, children didn't do anything wrong to end up in a family that is dysfunctional or that is economically deprived. No. So I do have a lot of worry about those kids. Yeah. No, it's called uh, personal responsibility, you know. Um, I'll share a little story with you. One of the best days of my life where I took control I hear this women say this all the time. They took control of their bodies, you know. I took control of my body and had a vasectomy. I walked out of that hospital knowing that I would not have be able to have another child uh, because I had two and I'm good to go and I didn't want to take a chance and having and bringing in more that I didn't know if I could support or not. 
Okay. I think that is uh, that's a whole other story. So I'm in the hospital, Tim, uh, laying down on a table in a military hospital. So here, was this I'm a while ago? A, I'm going off on a tangent. Yes. So you either get the best of care or the absolute worst of care in a military hospital. Okay? <laughs> I think I've never you'll, seen I think you'll agree. Care, but yeah. I, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I walk in there they say, drop your pants. And I'm like, you don't have a robe or something. They're like, no, just drop your pants. I'm like, okay, <laughs> lay on the table. So my pants are at my ankles and I'm laying there in this, in the, this room, you know, for God and everybody to see. And the, the room happened to be where all the supplies were for the rest of the ward. Right. So, I had everybody coming in to visit me with my pants hanging down by my ankles. And I would wave and say, hey, how you doing? And they'd kind of look at me and, you know, go about their business. So it was like a little humiliating for a while. And then the doctor finally comes in and uh, I didn't realize he was a resident and he was just kind of practicing. But when, oh, I started hurt, yeah. when I started hurting, I was like, oh, man, this this is not doesn't feel good, you know, because he was, you know, reaching inside of me and trying to tie tubes and stuff. And finally, the uh, the head doctor walks by and, he, and uh, the guy looks at me, and goes, man, if, if that guy had been doing your vasectomy, you'd have been done 15 minutes ago. And I wanted to leap off the table and choke this guy. Right. So anyway, he finishes up, puts two forceps on the no stitches or anything, just puts two forceps on the incisions and leaves. You know, and 20 minutes later, I'm still in this room, pants at my ankles, and I'm looking around and I'm like, this is, this is not right. So I take the forceps off, pull my pants off and drove home. So anyway, that was a, that was a long uh, story to say, you know, I I took charge of myself (laughs) (laughs) and uh, no more kids. I have lovely kids. I didn't want any more. And that is the solution to a lot, either you, you don't do it at all or you okay. use some sort of birth control. That's the answer, not having children. And then there's no such thing as people say, it was an accident or this or that. You know what? If you have unprotected sex, it doesn't matter. There's no accidents. That's it's just the way it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I um, <clears throat> we kind of moved away from... Uh, the welfare thing, but that I was took a you great way up. Story. No, it's all it's all part yeah. of it's all part of the same thing, Tim. You yeah. Got to go with me. No, I, I'm with you. And <laughs> the best story of all is how poorly treated you were. And I bet you this was at Portsmouth, wasn't it? Portsmouth yeah. Naval Hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Where the doc, this was his very first vasectomy after graduating <laughs> from medical school in Grenada. You know, the Navy's <laughs> finest. Yeah. You got it. That's good. And it sounds like it was conducted in a broom's closet. So well done, Portsmith. Yeah, continue on your stellar path. It was a supply closet. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I kept myself off of welfare by doing that. Well, not necessarily. I mean, you could have lost your job or been fired from the Navy. But, um, you know, I I, I think a lot about this because there's a sweet spot that we can't seem to hit. The sweet spot is very conservative people like yourself agree that uh, people who are disadvantaged need help. And perhaps people even further left of me say, we should do a lot more. And I think there's a sweet spot in between where, you know, we want to get people back in the game. We want to get people to be contributing members of society. That's the ultimate goal, don't you think? Yeah, I I do. So, Let's let's talk about food stamps. I, I don't even know what the program's called now, but uh, like WIC or something like that. But yeah. uh, 
I don't think if you're getting government money to lift you up, to help you out of this situation, that you should be able to go to the 7-Eleven and use your food stamps to buy a, uh, you know, a Twinkie. Hmm. I think it, there should be rules that, you know, you have to go to a, a certified grocery store all over this country, right? You can go get good food. You don't have to buy soda or anything. You buy you know, like meat and potatoes and pasta and chicken or whatever. Something that's meant to be good for you. But that's not the way that system's set up. Mm. You know, people actually yeah. trade that stuff in for money or they go in and buy crap and then, you know, then they're, it's you know, it's taken away from what the program's supposed to be for. Yeah, yeah. I, and I saw I, it all the time. Oh, did in you? Nor- yeah, in Norfolk and Virginia Beach. Absolutely. Did you have sailors on food stamps? Absolutely. Believe it or not, when I when I first came in the Navy, you know, I think a, a, a young sailor that was married with a kid was eligible for food stamps. Is that sad? Yeah, that's sad. That's but um, but it also encourages me because the the need was recognized and that sailor was kept going. Uh, because of the support and hopefully as he got promoted and started to make a little bit more money and be in transition from an apprentice to a professional he was able to come off of that you know like the idea was keep him going until he can come off of it so in that way I'm encouraged but we shouldn't on a future episode Rick we're gonna have to talk about uh, marriage and the military and young people Um, so yes uh, you don't. I, I, you don't I, want to I, talk about. You don't want to talk about my vasectomy anymore. Uh, there's probably <laughs> at least five or six listeners that like would like to hear uh, more about your vasectomy. But I, it's just a perfect military story. That's why uh, I rarely went to the military hospital for anything. Now I will say in the special operations community, unlike the special operations community where you worked, where they were very hesitant to, to work on you, like locally. Um, and other areas, there were clinics that were full of special operations medics who were incredibly good and would right. stop what they're doing and attend to you. And I've had very good experiences. That's different than the large hospitals, um, right. which underfunded, understaffed. They're still training people. Most people, there's very, uh, profound lack of expertise. So There's also one other exception. Yes. If you if you ever have a Navy SEAL that is also a corpsman, a hospital corpsman, yeah. that's the last guy you want treating you. Because <laughs> they don't care about medicine. They care about being a SEAL. Right. So if you say see someone coming up with a scalpel or something to give you a shot or something like that, you run. <laughs> yeah. if, you're, if, you, if you can. Yeah. And you ask for the Air Force pararescuement. That's, That's who right. you want to take care yeah. of. Yeah, exactly. You tell the yes. SEAL medic, I'm feeling so much better now. <laughs> exactly. You practice giving each other IB, IVs in the team room, and there's blood everywhere, all over the carpet. We just ruined you know thousands of dollars worth of carpet, but we got our good training in. But Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good objectives met. Exactly. So back to, back to the welfare. I, there is a place in this country, obviously, we want to take care of people. Um there just has to be a way to be more accountable, I guess. Yeah. Um, and and I think in right. all things, accountability is, is the, is the key because once you get on it, the goal is to get off of it, not to yes. remain on it. And I think that's the problem. There've been generations of people on welfare and that's all they know. Yeah. Um, they don't know they're supposed to go get a job or uh, work hard or, you know, to achieve their goals and, 
you know, have some sort of a, a dream of what their life could be off of welfare. But you, would you agree with this statement? Um, I'll tell you the author of the statement in a second, but um, it says our middle class, uh, let's see. We uh, we have to strengthen our great uh, we have to strengthen our greatest asset our middle class and making sure that everyone can share in success uh, of the country no matter one's race gender zip code religion sexual orientation or disability uh, that will require enormous investments in infrastructure broadband highways rail the energy grid smart cities and education I thought that was a pretty um, you know pretty fair statement what do you think. I, I mean, it's covered. It covered everything. Yes. Yeah. In order to be successful, we have to have all this stuff. It's like, yeah, you're right. The middle class is the backbone of this country. I agree. Um, and I think the backbone is education. So, if you have, if you educate the middle class properly and not indoctrinate them into all your liberal liberal leanings, right, we'll be fine. Yeah. But that I think that's the key. The rest of that stuff's going to come. When these, when As a result of class yeah. is educated. Exactly. Yeah. So education. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. If that is yeah. the pathway to the middle class. So you don't just educate the middle class. You spend a lot of money educating people so they can be in the middle class. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So who. OK. Who wrote it? Joe Biden, March 2020. Um, this was one of his early election speeches. And I'm uh, <clears throat> the reason I'm. I'm reading that is because I'm putting together something that talks about how the Democrats have learned from Trump. Um, you know, like, you know how uh, little I like the uh, president Trump, our president. I still, you know, he's our president. Uh, but people are starting to learn and attune to some of his ideas about there has to be more consideration given to the average American even though Democrats would say that's what we do, Trump really sharpened that blade. And so that's a speech uh, that was given in March of this year, acknowledging uh, the need for greater investment in Americans um, at, the, at the working class and middle class level. And I think that was a really good, um, you know, there, there's more to it than that. But that, uh, it was a really good um, example of where hopefully the Democrats are really listening to where Trump was successful and resonating and we'll take advantage of that and and do some good things for american citizens that's really what it's all about right yeah no i i hope you're right you know uh, yeah you're, he's he's gonna get uh uh you know the blessing in january here coming up and uh i hope for our country's sake he does a good job yeah um, i know you're i know that all governments you know that you that you have very low expectations of all governments and it's You've developed that over years of experience, and so I do worry about that as well. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it before about the media just being so negative on both sides. It's like if if we could just do away with that, I think yeah. our country would be better off. Which is sad because they were they had an important role at one point. Now it's just negativity and um, yeah, uh, you know, pitting people against each other. That's all they're there for in ratings. And uh, they're no longer reading the news. They are the news. So it's um, that's why I have hope that even even with Biden in there, uh, if he can make it four years, uh, <laughs> we might get Trump back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Sure. Mark my words. That won't happen. Um, <laughs> 
But I think it was, you know, one good idea is to put together a podcast where two friends who disagree politically can uh, can still agree on kind of common themes, just the application of politics to achieve those themes is different. So I, I'm, I'm glad Absol- we're doing this podcast. No, absolutely. Uh, any other topics you that you've about? been thinking uh, about? Nope. Bring it. I, we, we talked about my vasectomy already, right? That was, yeah, thank you. And I'll probably have to sleep with a night guard in tonight because I'll be having bad <laughs> dreams about you telling me that damn story. Yeah. Um, here's a good story for you, Rick. Uh, how much, I, I want to use this word charisma, uh, because I know when you took over the Navy SEAL Museum, it was in tatters. And it's not uh, because of any of the people that you work with now. Um, it's because it just really didn't have a vision uh, and had some internal strife. And they were very smart to bring you on. But now, I mean, you've got momentum. You've got money in the bank. You've got very faithful, reliable donors Um who you personally meet with and develop and uh, make part of the decision making? You've got another museum on the way in San Diego, so um, you you couldn't coerce people into helping you. You didn't have the money, so instead you built a team. So I'd like to ask you, um, like, what have you learned in these last ten years about charisma and about? developing relationships and about building a team effort and empowering people uh, that you could share with our listeners because the museum's a success story uh, and it wasn't a success story before you arrived so perhaps you could talk about that yeah you know when I first got here you know obviously being in the military if you depending on your rank is when if you speak people are you know basically they listen right so the, the people underneath you, and it, that's that's the system. Um, when I got to the museum, it was, you know, 180, because I had been in the military for 34 years. I got here, and then it's I had to deal with a lot of different uh, ways of managing civilians. How's that? Because there weren't a lot of uh, military guys here. And um, I think that's what took me the longest uh, to understand, is like people are all the same. They just need, you know, good decision-making, good leadership and uh, so- sound judgment uh, when it, when it, when it's time. So it, it's just like when you're in the military, the worst thing you could have was a leader that didn't make a decision and, or, you know, like t- talked about things at nauseum to the point where like you didn't care what the decision was once it came out, but timely decision-making I think was the key to, uh, to moving forward here at the museum. Um, and also the, the time ramping up to build onto this museum gave me time to be more comfortable talking to people um, one-on-one because, you know, as another thing that, you know, we we're trained to keep our mouths shut um, and not talk about, you know, your career, what you're doing in the Navy. Um, so I've learned how to talk around subjects because a lot of people want to know th- things that I can't talk about and I won't talk about it because right. trying to protect the guys that are still in. So, I mean, I'm sure you get the same thing as a professor at Duke. Your students got to be asking you questions. Like, how is this, how was this decision made? How did this happen? Right. Right. And, uh, <clears throat> some of that, but I have a, so my relationship is different than your relationship. My students, there's a hierarchy there and, you know, I have things I have to pull them through or push them through and I have great students and, 
it, it's a very uh, rewarding job. But you have people who could dump you in a second. You just walk away. Um, they're not really, I mean, it's not your employee base that I'm talking about. Uh, you know, if uh, Elaine decided to move somewhere else, I mean, she'd be missed, but you'd replace her and you could build that small team. But it's this broader diaspora of retired frogmen who who commit time and energy. <clears throat> it's the uh, surgeon who uh, has been such a close friend uh, to you and been a real uh, helper as you got on your feet and you got uh, the museum going. And, you know, these people have committed to you, not in a fiduciary way, not in a authority way, just um, just because I, I think Rick, the, re, the recipe is that you empower them. And it feels good to be empowered and not micromanaged. And that, that's kind of the point that I want to bring out. Would you agree? Yeah, I do. Because frankly, I don't have time to micromanage. What's the what's the term? If it can be managed, it can be micromanaged. Yeah. You're absolutely right. But just like in the teams, if you have time to micromanage, you're miss you're not doing your your own job. Yeah. Because there's about seven other things that I need to be working on or uh, you know, driving everybody in a new direction, so I have to leave the 10th thing back to somebody else to handle and then give guidance when when needed which is not that often because people are competent or they wouldn't be working here or yeah. or anywhere. So if you don't trust your people, you're the one with the problem, not not them. And the final piece you know? is you will make a decision when it's necessary, won't you? Like you had some, <clears throat> there was a little bit of turpitude on the West Coast a couple of years ago and you said, hey, look, like these decisions have to be made and I'm, I'm sorry I can't build a big consensus and spend time. I have to make these decisions. And you did. And it helped, didn't it? Yeah, I think and I think it helps with the people around you. Like, if you really want my decision, yep. I'll do it. Yeah. But, you know, be ready. Yes. It's, yes. I no, think it's, that's it's the wonderful. best way to, to go around. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. Um, and I, I think those are good qualities that you bring to the museum. And um, I know we're kind of running out of time, but uh, I... In the future, I want to talk about that as it, in terms of leadership and how we can um, energize that a little bit above us. You know, you've, uh, you spoke very eloquently about previous congressmen and what they do and what they do that you like and how it affects you. And I think there's a leadership portion of this podcast that, uh, that we can talk about in the future. Yes, with that, we're going to say this is another episode of the uh, Friendly Fire podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You can get us on the museum website at www.navysealmuseum.org. Or you can go to app, uh, so I'm sorry, you can go to Apple Podcasts and listen to us. And we'll keep talking. And we'll talk about my vasectomy again. Okay, take it easy. Have a good day. Thanks. <laughs>